Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. Our topic today is illegal evictions. And I'm excited to be joined today by Rafael Ramos, Director of Legal Action of Wisconsin's Eviction Defense Project. We're also joined by Laura Tuggle, Executive Director of Southeast Louisiana Legal Services. Laura and Rafael, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. LSC's Housing Task Force recently released the Illegal Evictions Brief. In addition to detailing how and why illegal evictions take place, the brief showcases legal aid interventions, public policies, and other protections that can help tenants stay housed. Through LSC's Housing Task Force, we're looking at some of the major issues that can tribute to housing insecurity and instability all around the country. In addition to the illegal evictions brief, over the next few months, we'll also be releasing briefs on manufactured housing, extended stay motel rentals, and contracts for deeds. The illegal evictions brief compiles research and interviews from experts working in civil legal aid and housing, and those experts include Laura and Raphael. During the pandemic, eviction moratoria, emergency rental assistance, and other actions are widely credited with keeping legal evictions, that is, those evictions pursued through the court system in accordance with state and local laws, at low levels during 2020 and 2021. However, civil legal aid providers noted an increase in illegal evictions during the height of the pandemic as some landlords pursued alternative avenues for forcing tenants out. Many tenants found themselves locked out without notice. They had their utilities shut off or faced threats and intimidation or had their belongings without notice emptied onto the sidewalk. In a July 2020 survey of 100 legal aid and civil rights attorneys in 38 states, the National Housing Law Project found that 91% of respondents reported illegal evictions were happening in their areas. This is right at the outset of the pandemic. Pandemic or not, some landlords will seek ways to avoid the costs and the perceived hassle of taking eviction cases to court. Whatever the reason, illegal evictions are a contributing source of housing instability and homelessness across the country as affected tenants are forced out of their homes. The people most impacted by illegal evictions are low-income families, low-income people of color, people with disabilities, those with mental health challenges, and immigrants. With that as background, I'd like to turn to our expert colleagues and, as a first question, help our audience to understand what illegal evictions are. What types of illegal evictions are you seeing most often in your communities and why are they happening? Raphael, why don't we start with you and tell us what you're seeing in Wisconsin? Sure, thank you, Ron, and thank you for having us here to talk about these important issues. You know, 
Illegal evictions are normally what we're looking at is situations where an eviction is being conducted basically extrajudicially outside of the court process. And in Milwaukee, the two main types of illegal eviction that we see are lockouts where landlords are changing keys, locks on units so the tenants don't have access and they literally can't get back in. We also see a lot of constructive evictions, which are basically situations where the landlord is through other mechanisms trying to encourage or force a tenant out of the unit. So uh, utility cutoffs are the most common form of that. You know, we live in Wisconsin, just terribly cold during the winter. So cutting someone's heat off can be deadly and it really forces them to relocate, forces them out and fix them um, without even needing to change the locks. You know, we, we also see situations where landlords will cut off electricity or access to hot water and other forms of constructive eviction that we hear about from our clients. And, you know, I think the reason why those illegal evictions happen uh, kind of varies from time to time. Some landlords are predatory and they'll use them to force people out really as quickly as possible. Uh, other landlords, I think there is probably a small percentage that really don't know that they can't do that and that they can't remove someone without going to court. But I think most know that court is required in order for legal eviction to take place. I think it, most often it's really coming up where there's some sort of fractured relationship between the landlord and tenant. You know, for example, either because of breakdown in communication or because a tenant complains repeatedly about living conditions because they're terrible at the unit or sometimes just extended periods of unpaid rent. But I think illegal, illegal evictions happen for, for various reasons, but they are, they are very real and they're a very real problem here in Milwaukee and nationally. Laura, what are you seeing in uh, New Orleans and Southeast Louisiana with regard to illegal evictions? Well, very similarly to what Raphael described, we see a lot of lockouts, illegal lockouts. Here in Louisiana, when I first started doing landlord-tenant work many, many, many years ago, I would have clients tell me, my landlord has put my stuff out on the banquet which is French for sidewalk. <laughs> so that was a very common expression, meaning my landlord just put my stuff out and could be illegal or, or legal, but fre frequently we would hear it more in a situation where the landlord is kind of engaged in a self-help eviction process instead of going through the courts. A little bit different than Wisconsin, our extreme weather is the heat and the hurricanes. So when your landlord shuts off your utilities, takes the fuse from the air conditioner or, or sometimes even comes and removes the air conditioners, we wind up with a very similar result that folks just can't live there and the heat can kill them. One other thing that I, I alluded to, we also see whenever there's a natural disaster there will also be a spike in evictions, illegal evictions. Very common that that happens. We may talk a little bit more about some legislation that was recently passed to help deal with the inevitable spike when there is a disaster. But put that in the context of also a global pandemic and then a major disaster on the heels of that, you're in a situation where Many tenants will often be behind on their rent. They may have evacuated for their own safety. After Hurricane Ida in 2021, 
all power in the greater New Orleans area was out for between one to three weeks. So you couldn't really be here. If you thought it was going to be difficult to try to work something out with your landlord just because you were behind on your rent from COVID, it was a a much worse situation on the heels of a disaster. And we had a lot of folks who were out of their unit because of a natural disaster. And some landlords claimed that they, quote unquote, abandoned their unit, which in Louisiana, if you have what we call indicia of abandonment, uh, if it basically looks like you're gone, your landlord doesn't have to go to court. And so that's where the sticky wicket comes is, are you really gone from your unit? Did you really abandon your unit? Or are you still living in your unit? And so those are the kinds of, of situations where we see evictions and, and illegal evictions spiking. Wow. Uh, that's pretty frightening, the idea that you abandon your home because of a disaster and your disaster is uh, multiplied by somebody out of ignorance or otherwise uh, misinterpreting uh, your intent. Raphael, what did you see, what have you seen in uh, Wisconsin with regard to the frequency of illegal evictions during the pandemic? Did, Did that have any effect on volume or types of illegal evictions? You know, it's a good question, Ron. I don't know that it necessarily changed the volume of the number of illegal evictions, but I think part of that's because we don't know how many illegal evictions are being, you know, taking place at any given time. But I think one thing it did change was the underlying rationale for why the illegal evictions were taking place, uh, particularly during the moratoria, uh, whether local or national. I think landlord frustration really became a basis for a lot of these underlying evictions uh, where, you know, a landlord would initiate an eviction suit and see it stayed because of a moratorium and then get frustrated and pursue an eviction, uh, despite the fact that they weren't allowed to, to actually do it. So they were legally prohibited from obtaining a legal eviction. So they turned to the other option, which is the illegal eviction, to actually remove people. You know, we, we had um, multiple cases of that happening. We had one case where a landlord filed an eviction action in court. We represented the tenant. The tenant obtained a stay of the eviction proceeding because of the national eviction moratorium. The landlord got frustrated and filed a second eviction action, even though the first was still pending. We got that case dismissed because the first case was already in in place. And rather than file a third eviction or wait for the first eviction actually to be addressed, the landlord then took it upon himself to, to change the tenant's locks, tell all the other residents in the unit that they could go in and take that tenant's belongings. And that, that tenant lost all of their personal property, a lifetime of belongings because of the landlord's frustration with what he perceived to be an unfair situation with, with the moratorium, which is really just trying to keep people in their homes. So, you know, we've, we've seen lots of that where, where frustration, either because of moratorium or landlords who are frustrated because they're waiting for federal rent assistance dollars to come through and they just have lost patience with it, going ahead and proceeding with these illegal evictions, which is a real problem, especially when there are resources available to make both the landlord and the tenant whole and keep keep someone stably housed. Seeing underlying impatience be the basis for eviction is really, really frustrating uh, on our end. You know, so that's, I think those are probably the biggest 
differences we've seen pre-pandemic and post-pandemic now. I just want to underscore two points you made. One, sort of an obvious one, but uh, one we we need to say out loud, which is as much as we're not completely sure that our data on lawful evictions is complete, we you know some jurisdictions aren't very good about sharing all their data. Certainly with regard to illegal evictions, uh, by definition, we don't know if we're seeing the uh, tip of the iceberg or, or you know, the upper uh, 30%. And but we, we know f- to a certainty that there are a lot more that we don't know about than just the, the ones we hear about. And the other point, you know, I, I want to make, I, we're not going to dwell on it here, is particularly the emergency rental assistance really was a, a, a game changer for a lot of people because it did provide uh, funds that have not previously and at this point in many jurisdictions no longer exist. And it did create an opportunity for people to stay in their homes with the assistance of government-provided rental assistance. And as as you said, Raphael, really presented a, a, a win-win opportunity for both tenants and landlords if they were willing to take advantage of it. Let me ask a, a slightly different question. When we're talking about housing supply, housing insecurity and instability, you know, talk about the role of evictions and and illegal evictions in that whole dynamic. Obviously, housing for all of us plays an enormous role in our lives. For most of us, it's not it's something we take for granted. We don't day-to-day think about, where am I going to be next week? Laura, could you address those issues? Sure. I, I will. I would never say that COVID had any sort of silver lining. But I would say that I really think that in many ways, COVID kind of shone a spotlight on the severity of what happens to families and individuals and communities of color and people living with disabilities. What happens when you're at risk of eviction and losing your housing and how destabilizing it is. And I think more than at any other time in my, in my career, uh, certainly more than after Hurricane Katrina, so many people from all walks of life, all professions, government, banks, private landlords, doctors, just generally people in the community and business leaders were very, very worried about what happens when there are evictions. And it took a mass crisis to really raise the profile, at least around here, about housing instability and how it undermines communities. And I'll give you an example of a gentleman during COVID that that we helped in Louisiana, the moratorium really only lasted a couple of months. And we were back in eviction court in person. Uh, we didn't have any remote Zoom evictions like other parts of the country. And we were back in court in June. So there was a brief period of time for about two and a half, three months when a landlord could not get into court. And we had a gentleman who had previously been homeless. 
So it had already gone through, he had a lot of health conditions, and he had already had a very hard time and was getting back on his feet and getting his health stabilized. And he had gotten a job. He actually had two jobs. He was working part-time in a restaurant as like a dishwasher. And then his other job was dealing with picking up trash in the French Quarter. And so when COVID hit, you know, the tourism industry, restaurants, all of that was wiped out almost overnight everywhere. He was four days late on his rent. And this was in March of 2020. And he was four days late. It got to April. He was a few days late on the rent. The courts weren't even open. And he came home from his one job he still had in the French Quarter picking up trash. And he couldn't, his key wouldn't work. And the landlord had locked him out. He had medicine in his home that he had to have or else he could get very, very ill. And, you know, you you couldn't get anywhere to try to replace things or anything like that. So there were no windows left ajar that he could kind of sneak through. <laughs> to, to It was his own home, so he wouldn't have been sneaking in. But long story short, we had a heck of a time even filing legally. You know, we had to go meet a judge like outside in a hallway and... <laughs> and get uh, get an injunctive relief filed. And even once we got it, ordering the landlord to let him back in, she would not. Some of our colleagues at the mayor's office, uh, the mayor's office ended up calling, and she finally unlocked the door, but things were very unpleasant. But that's just one person's life, you know. To have someone that might have become you know, homeless again on the street. I mean, he was literally sleeping on the street. This story made the news and, you know, nobody would really take him in because of COVID. And that was in the very beginning. So that's, you know, just an example, one example of how a situation like that can really spin out and undermine your health, undermine, it can undermine your job security, had uniforms locked up in the house. He couldn't get to his uniforms for his job. He was trying to hold on to it. And that's just one person's story. And when you, when you layer on what happens to, to families when there are children involved, uh, it's even more difficult. Raphael, in preparing our illegal evictions brief, you referred to illegal evictions as, quote, one of the most frustrating blind spots, end quote, your organization faces. Could you tell us more about why that is? What makes illegal evictions so complicated? Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, inherently the idea of an illegal eviction is it's happening outside of the legal system, right? So when it comes to legal evictions where landlords filed the eviction filing in court, we have a court case. We know where to find those people. We can count the number of cases that are happening every month, every year. We know how common, you know, how commonplace that concern is, and we know how significant it is. With illegal evictions, you know, by their nature, they're happening extrajudicially. They're just a landlord locking somebody out of their unit or changing, you know, or taking their door off and forcing them out. I think one of the things that makes it such a frustrating blind spot for us is that we have no real idea how often that happens. We we get to work with the people that find us and 
have, you know, the instinct to reach out and look for resources, whether that's legal or otherwise. You know, sometimes we'll get referrals from the mayor's office or from the PD's office, the city attorney's office directing people to us. But if people don't take that extra step to reach out for assistance, there's a good chance that we would never even know that that illegal eviction happened. So it's it's really frustrating. It's also really, you know, challenging because when people reach out to us in connection with an illegal eviction, we're also working with them after the fact. Like at that point, an injury has happened. That person's life has been devastated. They've lost their home. They very often lost all of their belongings. And they've done it without, they've gone through that without any warning. A legal eviction, you get your notice, you have your court process, you have time to think about this and at least become accustomed to the idea that this might be happening. An illegal eviction can happen in a snap. And then before you know it, you've gone from being comfortable in your home to all of a sudden being out on the street with, with no belongings at all. And, you know, Laura mentioned this. In Milwaukee, our court system is not set up at all to really effectively address an illegal eviction. Um, evictions in Milwaukee are all handled through our small claims court. And that's been specifically empowered to deal with eviction filings, eviction cases. But these illegal evictions require an injunctive order to let the tenant back into a unit. And our small claims court, many of the judges have repeatedly said, that's not within the scope of my authority. So their only recourse is in large claims court, which is a far more complicated process. It is inaccessible to people who need to get back in their home in the most exigent of circumstances. The courts and are expensive. Exactly. It's expensive. It's it's not an option for people who are going through a trauma. It's incredibly frustrating. As a practical matter, it's a catch-22. Your, your the landlord is, is, the system is set up to, in effect, advantage people who engage in self-help. Exactly. And it's, it, there's a real irony in that we use the small claims court system, a process which is designed to facilitate fast, easy use to empower landlords to obtain quick, fast, easy evictions. But people who are being evicted are subject to a fast process that, you know, doesn't provide them with real opportunity to be heard. And then people who are illegally evicted can't use that same process to try to find justice. It's incredibly frustrating. We don't know how often it happens. We know it happens a lot. And then when people do keep come to us asking for help, our ability to help them is constrained and it, it becomes much more challenging. And people really need help to fight it because they really can't do this on their own. Heads I win, tails uh, spend $5,000 to uh, get a lawyer to uh, see whether you win. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You have to get kind of creative in how you, if it's a landlord that just really doesn't know, we've done things like get on the phone with the clerk's office in the eviction court on a three-way call and say, look, you don't want to believe me. Yeah, I'm Mr. Jones's lawyer, but listen to listen to the clerk. She's going to tell you or he's going to tell you. Sometimes we're able to get the police involved. It's really a mixed outcome. Sometimes the police are the ones, you know, the tenants frequently call the police when they're locked out before they call us. And sometimes the law enforcement response is, oh, well, that's a civil matter. Y'all take it to wherever. 
or sometimes we've done training with some local police departments. Sometimes you'll get a watch commander who has received, you know, education <laughs> about what the process is supposed to be and and we'll actually have an officer tell the landlord, hey, man, you got to you got to take the locks off and, and you take this person to court. But it can really go either way how that situation might go. Sometimes you can send the great, strongly worded letter, but sometimes you just have no other recourse but filing in, quote unquote, big court. And there is a bond required in Louisiana. And if you if it's a non-payment of rent case, if you're already behind on your rent, you probably don't have the money for a bond. So it can be a real sticky wicket for someone who's facing an illegal eviction on for all kinds of reasons. Laura, you really told a very compelling and moving story a few moments ago about the gentleman who was basically locked out of his home and locked away from uh really, you know, life-impacting medicine that he needed. Can you talk a little bit more generally with regard to your work, particularly around New Orleans, about patterns you're seeing in terms of what tenants are most vulnerable to illegal evictions? Obviously, somebody with severe health conditions, I assume, would be one, one category. Definitely. Another category of folks who are at an increased risk are immigrants especially if you might not have legal status in the country. A landlord will often know that or think they know that and may threaten, hey, if you don't cough up the rent or if you don't get out of here, I'm going to call ICE on you. That happens quite a bit. Even for folks that, you know, are legally here in the country, there's threats that happen uh, in that regard. We also had one of our notorious bad landlords, I'll just put it that way, who would engage in some pretty terrible practices. And I've only seen this from time to time, but I imagine it happens in a lot of other places. But this particular landlord would frequently rent to folks who may have had a criminal record or may have had other kinds of barriers in obtaining housing, may have had a, a history of a lot of other evictions or or something like that, and would very frequently tell a client if they got behind in their rent, I'm going to call your probation officer, or I'm going to call your parole officer, and I'm going to tell them you stole my air conditioner, or I'm going to tell them that you stole my whatever if you don't get out of here, and who do you think they're going to believe? That kind of behavior has has definitely happened with populations that have other kinds of barriers, maybe from reentry or maybe formerly homeless folks who have, have a history of being unstably housed maybe in the past. And then, of course, probably in Louisiana, our other really high-risk population is people impacted by disaster, which is pretty much all of us. <laughs> but in the context of an eviction, it it really raises the stakes to the point where after Hurricane Ida, we had some bright spots in Louisiana where uh, Hurricane Ida impacted pro- almost 20% of the entire state's population. 
so many people had catastrophic impacts from that. And unlike other types of events, we didn't just see like a mom or pop landlord or a small landlord. Uh, We were seeing sometimes even housing authorities and larger landlords resorting to saying, hey, you know, I thought you abandoned or this place is too damaged for you to live here, kind of making that decision on their own. And so long story short, we had some bipartisan legislation under House Bill 160 that did a couple of things to help protect disaster victims from evictions in the 30 days after a disaster is declared. So one thing was for that period of time, a presumption of abandonment goes away. That's usually in our state law. So the landlord isn't allowed to just think, oh, I thought you left or it looked like you had gone or or that kind of thing. And if the landlord does decide not to file an eviction and illegally take action, they can be penalized for $500 or twice the rent. So definitely twice the rent would be more impactful for tenants. And that bond I mentioned, that security that you usually have to file in order to to get that injunctive relief and to get that lawsuit going, that is waived for that particular instance. It's a step forward, but it still requires a tenant to figure out how to get to a lawyer and how to file a regular lawsuit. But we're we're happy that we got something. Raphael, any thoughts on your part as to what government leaders, the legislature, city council can do to help in, in this area? Well, I think they, they have a lot of options. There's a lot of opportunity to really help people in these circumstances. Even though we don't know who they are or where they are, um, there are things that can be done to assist them. You know, uh, Laura mentioned a lot of this in terms of what civil legal aid can do. Um, you know, we can represent people who've been unlawfully evicted to help them get back into their home potentially, or if they decide it's not worth the hassle because they don't want to work with someone who would illegally evict them once. We can also, uh, you know, potentially represent them in lawsuits to affirmatively sue for loss of property, seeking double or treble damages, and really try to discourage them from engaging in that behavior again, and maybe setting an example for other landlords not to do that. So to answer your actual question, Ron, about what civil leaders can do, you know, they can certainly support that work. Any additional resources that legal service firms have to do that work, I think, would be helpful. In addition, they could expand and make clear that you know, illegal eviction, self-help eviction in any form is unlawful. Laura mentioned the challenges they have in some of the in some of the cases uh, involving illegal eviction and the inability of city government or the police to to help. In Milwaukee, we're lucky we have an ordinance in the city of Milwaukee prohibiting illegal eviction. Even in that situation, though, we had situations where people would call the police and the police wouldn't respond. You know, to to their credit, the city attorney's office. Uh, acting chief of staff there was really helpful in terms of working with their officers to remind them about what um, what the ordinance said and how they could respond to those situations. And there's an opportunity for all municipalities to do that sort of thing. Milwaukee has it, but others don't. So you can call the police in one area and they'll say, sure, we'll try to talk to the landlord, we'll try to help. You call another one and then their PD says, actually, we, we really can't do anything. This is a housing landlord tenant issue. So, you know, there's an opportunity for leaders to 
draw a line in the sand and say these practices are unlawful, and then to potentially provide for enforcement mechanisms and penalties to really discourage these practices. Um, because you really have to address them on the front end. Because on the back end of things we've talked about, there's so many people who are injured that will, will suffer these consequences without, without any assistance. Laura, we've been talking about the fact that we don't know how many people are being illegally evicted or exactly who they are unless they come to us and ask for help. How do you do outreach to people whose identity you don't know? How do you uh, publicize the availability of your services or the rights people might have uh, uh, and the avenues they might have to enforce those rights? How do you, how do you reach your, your potential clients? I think it's similar to all the kinds of outreach that we do. You know, we try to do community legal education as a preventative measure in a really wide range of, of legal areas. So certainly one of the things is using different kinds of vehicles, including on-site community-based outreach. We always like to make sure that our homeless continuum of care providers, they are really in the on the front lines of making sure that unstably housed families get resources to prevent homelessness or end homelessness. And they frequently work with families, especially high-needs families, for a period of time even after placement. And many of them are in these high-risk categories. So we want to make sure that the homeless continuum of care case managers know the law and know where to go to help and know where to send their people for help. We also want to keep, when we have those opportunities to provide education to our police departments, we want to keep that going because they are often helpful, sometimes not so helpful, but but some are really open to taking those calls, although their resources are, are really strained. And then in Louisiana, we have justices of the peace in addition to city courts that handle evictions. And sometimes those justices of the peace, you don't have to be a lawyer. So we like to make sure that our folks handling eviction cases, uh, they do get some training, but we like to try to offer training to our justices of the peace because unfortunately, sometimes they might not fully realize what is supposed to happen and not happen uh, in the eviction process. Those are just a few of the things that you want to do to be out there kind of engaging, educating the public. We also frequently do an annual training in some of our larger uh, cities with housing authority Section 8 workers Station 8 case managers so that they're familiar with what the process is. So those are just a few ways to try to get the message out when you don't know exactly who's going to need to hear that message. Raphael, any f- final thoughts on that? Yeah, not, not a lot. Laura really covered a lot of it. You know, we're doing a lot of outreach, which you mentioned. Know your rights trainings are things that we've been focusing a lot on lately. Um and trying to do those on-site in communities that face these sort of housing issues most frequently. We've also developed a few specific projects that are designed 
really towards addressing community-based concerns, like our community law project and a, a neighborhood initiative that we have uh, under another grant where we're actively trying to engage with community to identify community concerns, which often includes these housing issues, and trying to establish on-site presences in the form of in-person interaction in community neighborhoods, uh, in, in community neighborhood associations, excuse me, and then also, you know, having a presence locally in some neighborhood neighborhood buildings so that we have on-site office hours once a month where people can come access resources without having to go online, without having to go to our office, and really trying to let people know that these resources, that our resources and services are available so that we can try to address some of the issue of these cases, you know, just flying under the radar. There's one other population that we do regular trainings for. It is a lot of times the landlords most likely to engage in this behaviors are kind of the mom and pops landlords, not always, but frequently. We have a number of programs in our part of the state that do first time home buyer training. And in Louisiana, we ha- we frequently have doubles where one side will be the landlord, one side will be a tenant. And so we have a curriculum with some of our first-time homebuyer programs for landlords that are going to become owners of doubles, and they have a number of sessions, and there's one about landlord-tenant laws. So we, we try to use whatever resources we have to reach the mom-and-pop landlords so that they have an idea of what they should and what they shouldn't be doing. Thank you. Laura Tuggle and Rafael Ramos, thanks so much for being with us today. But more importantly, as reflected in your discussion today, thank you for everything you do to keep people in Louisiana and Wisconsin in their homes. It is truly life-saving work, particularly uh, during the pandemic. So thank you for that. Thanks so much, Ron. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.